Hello everyone, this is Stavros Yanuka welcoming you to another episode of Wise Words, the podcast where we discuss all things to do with education and more. Our guest on this episode is Megan Fallone. Megan is the CEO of Barefoot College International, a not-for-profit based in India that aims to empower illiterate and semi-literate rural women throughout the developing world by unlocking their innate creativity and skills. Uh, Megan is originally from New Zealand. Uh, she's an avid mountaineer, skier, and diver with a Bachelor of Fine Arts from Yale and a Master's from Birkbeck College, London. Megan spent her early career as a social entrepreneur on various ventures spanning her passions for mountaineering, the environment, art, and women's empowerment. In 2011, Megan joined Bunker Roy, the founder of Barefoot College, to lead its transformation from an India-centric grassroots initiative to a vibrant global organization. On this episode, we talked, amongst other things, about Megan's personal philosophy as a social entrepreneur uh, and how it is exemplified in her work at Barefoot College. We also discussed Barefoot College's flagship women's solar engineering program and its role as a vehicle for economic and social empowerment. We also touched on the importance of multi-stakeholder partnerships in designing and redesigning context-specific education solutions. And with that, Wise Words brings you Megan Fallone. Megan Fallone, welcome to Wise Words. Thank you very much. Thrilled to be here with you, Stavros. Uh, Megan, before we start our, uh, our conversation uh, and, and get into the, the substance, the educational substance of what you do, uh, I'd love for you to share your personal backstory with our listeners. Sure. Um, well, I'm very blessed because I had two educators as parents. I had a father who was a mathematician, is a mathematician, and a jazz musician and uh, was a university professor for all of his life uh, in America, and a mother who was a social worker and a preschool teacher. So I grew up in a family that was all about learning and about uh, the access to the world that that could give you because my father was the first in his family to go to university. So I suppose those things inform a lot about how you approach learning in your life and, um, and your passion for learning. So I certainly have that. I'm a for-profit entrepreneur who started three companies, my first one uh, when I was 36 years old. And um, they ranged from uh, art and art consulting to a gallery, and then lastly, a heli-ski company, which gives you a hint to my other passion, which is uh, I was a high alpine mountaineer for 12 years. Uh, I have climbed wow. and trekked and walked more than uh, 8,500 kilometers in some of the, the planet's most incredible ecosystems. Um, and one of the great things about mountaineering is that you have many weeks of walking and acclimatization, usually before you arrive to, to base camp where you, where you start to head off. And that gave me an opportunity to do something that my corporate young life hadn't given me an opportunity to do, which was to just sit and listen to rural people, primarily women, about their lives, about the challenges they faced, and certainly about what they felt they needed, because women are quite clear on what they need to be successful. And um, that was really, uh, I would say, my entry into Barefoot. Um, I do have to say I have a uh, aunt and uncle who worked with Sir Edmund Hillary in the Himalayas, who started the first okay. school so for the Sherpas. There. Yes, that explains the mountaineering yeah, bent. Yeah, yeah. My um, so I'm born in New Zealand, and my mother is a New Zealander, and uh, yeah, so I have I have this mountaineering background, and I think also certainly my um, extreme sport because I'm also a diver and uh, I do many other things, rock climbing and other things. Um, that certainly affects your risk profile about how you assess risk um, and what kind of risks you're willing to take. And your confidence, certainly in yourself, comes from building a risk-reward uh, profile. And when you climb something that's nearly 7,000 meters and you never imagined you would do that, you begin to think, well, okay, what else can I do that yep. I never imagined I could do? So all these things are leading me to um, 
my uh, my companies always had a uh, investment in girls and women's education. It was always a passion for me. Yep. Empowering women was always something very important to me. And I funded a project with Barefoot College. Yep. So that was my intro to Barefoot College. Um, I was working in East Africa with a group of women embroidery um, communities doing embroideries that would be hung in a beautiful luxury hotel in uh, Dar es Salaam. And uh, I realized they couldn't work at night. So they actually couldn't produce very much because, in fact, it was very fine embroidery that took pretty yep. good quality light. And they couldn't uh, do that in the evening because they had no access to energy. When I went in their village, I also realized there were power lines just outside the village. And I thought, but why is no one connected? The power's here. Was my first opportunity to understand that access to energy is political. And that yep. the system often is set up to um, perpetuate poverty in many ways, um, just by virtue of uh, strange policy decisions and a, and a non-sensitivity to the needs of the rural poor. So in this case, it meant a 350-some dollar cost to hook the box up to your house, which of course would be insurmountable for the kind of communities that I was I was dealing with. and. Yep. Um, I got angry, and generally when I get angry about something, I start thinking about, okay, how am I going to solve that? Um, because this is what an entrepreneur does, is solve for one challenge after another challenge after another challenge. So um, Bunker and I did the first selection together in those communities, the, the founder of Barefoot College and I, and, uh, and that was pretty much it for me. I was like, no way, this is the best job I could ever do because – it brought together everything that had been my journey before that. It brought together um, my love of learning and giving that opportunity to other people. It brought together my risk and entrepreneurship profiles that were um, really wired towards innovative thinking and innovative thought. And um, it, it really, for me, was... Um, what I decided I wanted to do with the next 10 years of my working life um, was to uh, do something that wasn't about yep. me. <laughs> and when, when did you start working directly uh, with Barefoot College? Right. So then um, within that year, so that was, uh, that was eight years ago. This is the start of my eighth year. I'm yep. about halfway through my eighth year with Barefoot now. And when I, when I joined Barefoot, um, it was a point in the organization's trajectory as, at that point, it was a 38-year-old organization. Um, at that point, it was really um, starting to think about scale. They had had tremendous success with both the Women's Solar Engineering Initiative. They had had wonderful success in their non-formal education programs. Yep. And they really were ready to professionalize those to give them more structure and to be able to build teams that would really be able to then continue to innovate what had been started and you know many people um, don't realize when Barefoot College started it was a group of young people some of them were rural non-formally educated and some of them were like Bunker who had come from a traditional education and I felt that the organization had lost that synergy it was no longer attracting urban kids, young people, who had great things to learn and great things to offer to the existing core yeah. rural staff. And the rural staff had become pretty entrenched in thinking and a little bit arrogant about their success. And I felt like they needed also to be brought into the outside world. So I really created a strategy for reconfiguring the mix of people in the human resource staff to be able to bring a lot of that synergy back into the organization. Yeah. The, I, I, I saw some of the material that you, uh, you, uh, you shared with, uh, with me and um, <coughs> what, what struck me in, your, uh, in, in, in that mission statement was the, the 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 phrase honoring practical knowledge that that you know part of the reason for being or a large part of the reason for being of of barefoot college is to honor practical knowledge can you say a little bit more about sure. that sure so we really believe fundamentally that um, 
that rural children, rural people, need a rural education, one that is aligned, that doesn't disempower them by sort of setting them up um, either for aspirations that won't keep them in villages, that will drive them to cities. So we're dealing with an urban migration mindset. Um, and also that we return over and over and over again to the fundamental belief of Mahatma Gandhi on who this organization was founded, on his lifestyle and work style. And it amazes me how relevant so much of what Gandhi uh, wrote and thought is today, um, even in the age of technology. And fundamental to his belief was this idea that the wisdom, skills, and knowledge that already exist in rural communities were a place of abundance to start with, and that we should approach those with dignity, with respect, with understanding of their value, instead of looking at those communities from a point of view of scarcity, what's not there, and going in and trying to put on those glasses about let's fix what's not here. So it is from this spirit that that comes to our mission statement, which is about looking at the unbelievable talents that rural kids have. Um, their mental math skill, it's a great example. They're brilliant. They can do anything in their mind because they never have a pencil and they rarely have the tools that other kids have. So they're incredibly fast. How do we build on that? How do we make them even better, and how do we use that to link them to the outside world so they feel competitive, so they feel confident about their abilities? So that's really where where that mm. comes from and where it yeah. plays out. No, I, I, I have to say the what resonates with me is is this starting point of of looking at the the communities that you're trying to serve as as an asset. And, and not you know as as uh, uh, as a problem that that needs to be somehow fixed I guess what I what I might you know what 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 doesn't sit so well with me if if I may is this idea is is the urban migration mindset point and and you know I'm, I'm just I'm I mean maybe I've mis mm -hmm. misread the, the the comment but it, it it seems to me that are we are we not running the risk of, you know, bucketing people to say, okay, well, you know what, you're you were born in this rural community. You, I mean, I, I you're likely to stay here, and therefore I'm you know I'm sort of going to train you to be successful in this community, but you shouldn't aspire to to anything else. I mean, am I getting that no, wrong? That's not yeah. that's not what we're saying. Yeah. What we're saying is that um, many urban-based uh, educational um, uh, methodologies focus on um, relevancy that is particularly relevant in an urban area urban setting, and develop yeah. aspirations that are particularly urban-oriented. Yeah. All we'd like to do is see a slight variation that allows for rural children to contextualize their learning yeah. in a way that empowers them within their community. Fully, so that, fully support that. So that the, 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 the route isn't a one path, it's a multiple path. Yeah. But one of those paths is one of dignity and vibrancy and real contribution in a rural setting. And yeah. that that's not, certainly here in India, we face a really tough perception, which is that you've failed if you stay in your village. This is what we want to undo. You haven't failed if you stay in your village and you become the first woman sarpanch in that village. You've succeeded and you're a hero. So how do we sort of heroize the idea mm. of vibrant rural communities? How do we put that back in, that dignity, that respect, so that um, a, a choice to not migrate to a city is one uh, that is equally respected by, by parents and families and, and people in the community? Well, th thank you for, for clarifying that. Um, you, you also talk a lot about the role that, uh, that education plays in in empowering uh, people, particularly in 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 these rural uh, communities, um, and and maybe again you can can elaborate a little bit on 
uh, on that and, and, and really make that link explicit. And, and I say this because I think oftentimes, you know, in, in uh, both in, in, in a sort of more broadly in the, in the urban setting as mm. you as you describe, but also in, you know, in the developed world, we, we tend to take e- either take this link for granted or, or just ignore it and forget that there is this link mm. between education and empowerment. Absolutely. Um, I mean, nothing empowers like knowledge does. And one of the challenges I think we're, we're facing is around this idea of e- equality and inequality. You know, we are hearing this bombarded all over the place with the rise of populism, um, this frustration of inequality. And I, I've thought a lot about inequality and what drives that, what drives people to feel that, right? And how do we circumvent that? And um, and I think that at the heart is that um, inequality is not about what I have and what you have and this comparison that goes on. In fact, I don't see people who do that in the developing world. What I do see is a general frustration if they feel that their aspirations, whatever those are, cannot be met because of a system that doesn't serve them or access to knowledge that they need to be able to access their own aspirations. And when those things start to feel like it's systemic, there's a rise in in a sense of inequality. And so education and access to knowledge and learning what people feel they need to learn is super important. The developed world has this thing called the internet, right? If you're in a non-electrified community, you're not on the internet in the same way you or I are on the internet. And the perception Maybe 20 years ago, people didn't really understand what that was going to do for them. People know now. <laughs> and they're frustrated, right? I don't have access to this. And even if I do have access to it, I can't read and write, so I can't access it the way you can. So we have to look at redesigning our whole thought process around um, how we give people access to learning themselves um, and this concept of self-learning and self-access that isn't language-driven necessarily, that isn't um, written-driven. Um, and so I think all those things are part and parcel of, of this conversation. Um, the, the thing that we've learned by having, this is a great thing about being an organization that does multiple programs and has different strategic program units, which we are often criticized for, but in fact, the cross-learning that happens between them is so fundamentally important. And one of the things that the Women's Solar Engineering Initiative has shown us is what happens when you master a piece of technology. This amazing sense of accomplishment and confidence. Just, and just say a little bit about the, the program just for the benefit of listeners who may sure. not be familiar with uh, So the Women's with, with Barefoot the Solar Engineering Initiative trains illiterate and semi-literate women between the ages of 25 and 50 to be solar engineers. Now, they are not simply plug-and-play systems. They are building a circuit board that has 172 components. They're building a uh, LED set of lights that has more than 90 components. They're building huge portable solar lanterns. They're connecting mini grids. They're building a workshop that they're able to work out of and set up inverters. These women are fully capable of, um, you know, they really are engineers. That's impressive, that... And that curriculum is taught across with no common language and no written language. So you're looking at a technology that has been designed with a color coding system and an ordered system that the women learn that allows them to, ins- to completely fabricate this equipment. And, <clears throat> and then they test it and... Um, they test it and and it goes gets boxed up and then it goes out to be installed in their community by them when they go back. It's a six month training program from start to finish and it has a co-curriculum that accompanies it. The co-curriculum teaches eight pillars of knowledge that women we feel need to fully complete a holistic empowerment curriculum. Those are things like digital inclusion, being able to use a digital tool, a smartphone or a tablet, um, 
your basic human and legal rights, uh, a basic micro enterprise skill building, critical thinking uh, module where they actually do a business canvas in a very rudimentary sense. So they begin to order their thoughts and understand what they're doing. A section on um, women's health, wellness, and reproductive health, nutrition, things that help women feel in control of their body. Um, we talk about sustainability and being an environmental steward in their communities. So we make that link between the technology and the planet and their community and how that works into the SDG goals. Um, and lastly, we do a very deep dive on financial inclusion, household budgeting, so they can begin to be more aware about the power of money and also mm. what they can and can't achieve. A and all of this happens without literacy and numeracy? That's right. <laughs> That's interesting. The, each of the yeah. modules in Enrich are experiential. So they're workshops, and they're done with visual cards. And the women go through a series of activities using visual prompts. Um, and it's amazing, actually. You'll have a woman from Myanmar and a woman from Burkina Faso and someone else from Guatemala. And they will get it completely the same. They will mm. say, you know, yes, yes, this is happening, and this we have, and my husband hits me, and this is what I do about it, and this is what this is the card that shows what my family is like. So it's a lot of identifying well, where you've you are. You've almost created your own language, yeah, to a certain you know, extent, <laughs> using the they, visual the visual aids. They continue. Yeah. You know, we learn as much from them as they learn from us, and all of these things have been co-designed with them giving us feedback, and then we we make changes, so we're pretty responsive to what they say works and doesn't yeah. work. And, and we, we do a lot of videotaping and then analyze the videos, how they work. And then the last thing we do with the women that is really quite important is we do um, an, a very deep exercise on mapping their aspirations. So how do they vision what they'd like for themselves? For most of us, we grew up like I did, with a father and a mother and everybody around me who loved me and cared about me, saying, you can learn whatever you want, you can do whatever you want. Yeah. Most of the children and adults that I work with, especially the women, have been born into being told what they can't do. Yeah. So before you can even start to expect them to play a more engaged role, they have to be able to vision that for themselves and decide they want to go there. So. How, how do we get there and how do we have them start to think about first, what do they want for themselves? And second, what do they want for their community? And the number one thing every woman says to me is I wish I had an education. So it circles back to mm. your original question yep. to me, how, how do we make that link? I think that human beings fundamentally understand that knowledge is power and certainly women understand that profoundly. Yeah. What I find really sort of fascinating about the, the program is it is a very practical, very innovative solution to, you know, to, to a set of key, key challenges. Uh, I mean, I'd love to hear your thoughts of how one translates then that into, into satisfying the, the aspiration for, for education. Because while I, again, I, I hear and I admire the sort of the, the, the practical focus of the program and in, into addressing the reality that you do have large segments of, of illiteracy and that we should never abandon these 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 folks or or write them off and and maybe for them the approach is 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 not to at least in the short run invest in trying to teach them you know reading and writing in a traditional way um you know i i worry that over the long long run that's that's more of a stopgap approach rather than you know because there's so much value in in literacy and numeracy that goes beyond the kind of immediate mm -hmm. you know challenges of 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 you know making a living and, and raising a family I, so how are you thinking about about that issue about addressing that that longer term well challenge it's sort of funny because <clears throat> um so about five years ago <clears throat> I decided there really was no way forward without digital interface and without us being able to look at scale, design for scale, and to integrate some of the great technology that's out there. Um, because I do think that uh, we don't, we still don't use technology enough in the places it needs to be deployed. Mm. We tend to use it in very wealthy, privileged environments. And um, I, 
I started asking a variety of our donors to help us with this digital integration, to which pretty much everybody laughed at me. Barefoot College, why do you need to be digital? Why do you want to be digital? Oh, they'll lose their hardware, those people. They'll never take care of it. And I was just really blessed because I met Lisa Jackson from Apple, and they were willing to listen to this conversation and, in fact, understood almost immediately the opportunity that existed um, for strengthening outcomes, for measuring outcomes, and for being able to reach many, many, many more people if we were able to break down what we knew and this great 45 years of learning we had around how this sector learns, how they access information, how we had to present it to them. Um, and they agreed to partner with us here in India. And it has been an extraordinary partnership. It has been a partnership where I think they have learned from us and we have learned from them about functionality of hardware and how it doesn't uh, meet the needs of a, a low literacy person. And that's where the conversation of the next billion comes from, I think. Um, and we have learned how important it is for us to be very disciplined about the pedagogy and really taking a non-formal pedagogy and getting it into a formalized presentation. And that's a great lesson for, for us. And it's made us better and smarter. And we've learned tremendous things very quickly through that interaction. Um, and then I think we see, to your point about, um, you've got this problem and it's huge. By 2030, there will be more illiterate girls in India than there are in the world today, if we keep going on the trajectory we're on right yeah. now. We're not gonna get it done with building schools. And no matter how many we build and no matter how fast we build it, we're probably not gonna get that done. And that's just the five to 15 year olds. We have two generations of women who are older than them who aren't even being served. Because once you've gotten married at 14 or 15, forget it, you're not going back to school. So at the same time, we have a global economy that is ill-served by 50% of its inhabitants, women, because such a high percentage, 80% in rural areas, are not participating yeah. in a formal economy. So <clears throat> we have a lot of pieces in a complex, uh, challenge and so I think you have to go at that from lots of different directions and I think I look at what's happening in innovation in more formal education and the scaling mechanisms and governments responding to that I think it's fabulous it's inspiring but then we have to also come from the other direction yep. so I'm a little guy we're little at barefoot um, you know in the global scheme of things but if we can catalyze governments to think about the last mile, to think about new ways to maybe approach their last mile challenge, and to be able to capture some of those kids in a more productive way and get them at least build a passion for learning, my bet is that self-learning of literacy will come very quickly, and it is coming very quickly. And if they're not afraid, which is what we'd like them to be, not afraid and passionate, then they'll go there and they will seek that out. And I think that will happen. In our night schools, we have as many parents who sit outside the room as kids inside the room. I think that's what yeah. it's about. So how do you get to more people? We, you know, we, need to, uh, we need to continue on this digital path. What I also like about, about your approach is is again you're not limiting the the training and the education that you're giving to just just the vocational elements but you know you're introducing uh, conversation and thinking around values mm -hmm. you know around sort of higher order skills that you know can be bucketed and uh, you know I guess mm -hmm. broadly as as leadership yeah skills could, can you say a little bit more about that and how how you know, how you're seeing the impact of your work manifest in in, in the we, daily lives of people. We ran a, I, I was given an extra $35,000 from a donor 
<clears throat> about a year and a half ago, and, and we had really dreamed of being able to try a vocational skills course for high school dropouts um, in rural areas, because there's a very high percentage in yeah. India, <clears throat> and many of them girls, um, sadly. And um, we also face some significant gender issues, um, and the fact that in a family, the boy will be allowed to go to school very often, and a girl not. Um, and so... We, we had the idea that we wanted to try an, uh, an experiment, so we took this money and we, we took 42 uh, young people uh, by visiting their houses and really seeking them out and selecting a really good group of, of young people who were sort of meeting all of our targets and brought them in for a residential course of a year. When they arrived, heads were down, zero confidence, absolutely thought they couldn't learn. Most of them had flunked out of the high school, probably because they weren't interested or, you know, not interesting curriculum, or they learned a little bit differently than the government curriculum offered them. And um, we had all of them doing, yes, formal literacy and, and formal mathematics and, you know, basic subjects, but we also had them doing woodworking, metal shop, plumbing, sewing, boys and girls, and the solar engineering curriculum. And what we saw essentially was this journey that they went on together, boys and girls equally, um, where they not only had to live with each other, govern themselves, uh, try all these things they'd never tried before, um, and even some they thought they would never try, and the academic portion of that. And the result was phenomenal. In fact, of them, every single one is either back in school to finish or came to work for us or set up their own businesses because we also did some soft skills, uh, especially for plumbing and carpentry, how they could start their own small business. And I think the lesson is around um, being able to give people enough experiential journey in a condensed period of time that they gain the things mm -hmm. the rest of us got from minute one. Um, and, and how do we learn about how to do that quicker, faster, and more directly so that we're building confidence? It is all about confidence, about the risk-taking to try something, fail, look up, and see that nobody is going to beat you. Everybody looking at them at Barefoot College says, okay, try again from the youngest person in the staff yeah. to the oldest person. And that's contagious. You know, when you grow in that environment, you give that environment to other people. And all those kids now are outward thinking, outward looking, outward inclusive mm. in, their, in their outlook because they've seen handicapped people, all different castes, um, different countries. We have about 16 different countries of staff members. Um, and they learn from that community. I think it's something about going back to your community uh, and understanding what you can get from your community, which is very important. So how, how, are, you, how are you thinking now about scaling um, some of these programs and solutions? Right. So um, mm. the Solar Power Digital Night School program is the one that we, uh, we have designed for scale. And uh, we're now talking about how, you know, we can go beyond 200 of those um, to the next level. What is great about that is that even in a non-electrified community, so these happen at night between 6.30 and 9.30, six nights a week. They're taught by a community teacher, not a formally trained teacher. Mm -hmm. We have a teacher training curriculum, which brings in community members <coughs> and trains them. We have a digital uh, projector, which is solar powered which runs for five and a half hours. It has an Apple TV and an integrated uh, one tablet that goes with it. We can push content to that via mobile phone if we need to, but otherwise they can go to any uh, place where there's Wi-Fi and they can get their content. Um, and we can really curate extensive curriculums using that. Um, we've reached 40,000 uh, people in one month doing an awareness around um, uh, around sending your girls to school through the Malala Foundation. And so it began to open up a lot of doors for us about how powerful this projector can be. So we've got the projector. 
which is part of the night school model. And then there are tablets that go with that, which are also solar powered and solar lights. So some night schools happen outside under a tree. Other night schools happen in a building that the community has, mm. uh, has given us. And there's a community education committee which is responsible for monitoring their night school. So there's a community buy-in to providing education for their children and their teacher. And that makes it a very sustainable solution and one that has community um, support all the way around. So that's the model which we are now really getting behind to scale because we see mm. the opportunities tremendous. We've got some great technology partners like One Billion, which I think I, I said, um, because there is fabulous software. We're translating some of the TED educational videos uh, into different languages to load on there because the kids love them and um, amazing amounts of content are available. People are doing fine content work. If we can you know, really look mm. at how to create relevant curation that will target yeah. uh, certain messages that are important for them. And then we bring in community members. So a bone setter or a weaver might do a class yeah. in the night schools. So it's also about learning um, from each other. There are uh, lots of opportunities in the night school model for children to create their own content through iBooks Creator and some other uh, software that lets them tell their stories, which they then can broadcast to other children. So this peer-to-peer -peer learning, I think, and teachers being able to create content that passes between them. So that's one of the models that we um, are very, very, very mm. uh, bullish on. We also are scaling the women's solar engineering curriculum and the Enrich curriculum. Yeah. Um, here in India, we have a target to get Enrich, the empowerment curriculum, to a million women uh, in the next five years. And the solar engineering curriculum, we are now in 96 countries. Government of India has just given us uh, $2.5 million to build five barefoot colleges in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, we have one we would, uh, we're in the process of talking about in Guatemala for Latin America and one in Fiji for the Pacific Islands. So <clears throat> I think the idea behind Barefoot has always been that we eventually did ourselves out of a job and that communities took we'll, up and we'll took take, over. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and we're not proprietary, you yeah. know, in a sense about the best thing in the world that happens is a community picks up the model and then runs with it in their own way that suits them best. Uh, and we have to be flexible for that mm. um, and support that as best as we can. We, with, I mean, can I'll, I'll ask a potentially sort of sensitive <laughs> uh, question. And, and again, I, I, I like the fact that you're, again, your organization is, you're approaching the, the issue also from a sort of, from a hardware you know, standpoint, because I think, you know, <laughs> At the end of the day, hardware is 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 important, yeah. and and as you rightly pointed out, in particular, energy mm -hmm. is is critical. Um, if you if you have any chance of participating in, you know, in in the modern world, I mean, electricity is the sort of quintessential yep. uh, good of modernity. Um, how do you deal with 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 tech companies and and their you know? And the sort of built-in obsolescence that that you know that that characterizes many of our, you know, favorite products. You know, yeah. how because you know like that that runs counter to, you know, the the, the kinds of you know efficiencies that you're mm -hmm. trying to to get. And mm -hmm. you know, obviously these these communities are not going to be able to you know update their right. hardware every couple of years. So, well, I think it's it's a couple of thoughts I have around this. The first one is I really believe in the market to create and innovate in ways like the mobile phone did. I mean, you can buy a smartphone in India now for about $18, $20. So um, I think there's one part that the speed of hardware development and hardware accessibility and the new companies coming on the market and the economies of scale mean that costs for quite sophisticated hardware are going to come down very quickly. Yeah. Um, I'm not talking, you know, we're very blessed to right now be working with 
with Apple. Oh, no, you're not handing out iPhones. <clears throat> I, I get no, that. No, no, we're yeah. not doing that. Um, and so, uh, so I think that the market will serve this population over time in a more efficient and a more cost-effective way. And they'll transition then really quickly onto that. And I've already seen that happen. We're already seeing that happen mm -hmm. um, with smartphones now. And I think it does need to go to tablets because you don't, we know from almost everybody that you don't learn the same on a smartphone as you do on a, on a tablet. Tablet really is an effective tool for um, learning, whereas a smartphone is more of a referential tool. Mm -hmm. And um, so that's one aspect of that. I think the other one is that um, my hope, which is a, an optimistic hope and probably idealistic um, is that technology providers will think more sustainably about their hardware over time as well. I, we are certainly doing that, looking at um, things like biodegradable circuit boards and using recycled metals instead of extractive metals for parts within the solar equipment. And I, I hope that the pressure will stay on from a competitive point of view for companies, and I hope consumers hold companies uh, accountable for um, thinking about hardware sustainably, not just uh, other kinds of sustainability. Mm. And then I think that I have just seen how unbelievably resourceful very uh, people that come from scarcity are. Yeah. And I bank on that because they blow you away with how clever they are. And if they feel something has a value proposition to them, they will find a way to procure that thing and take care of it. You know, we have not lost the moral of the story of all those people that told me we were going to lose all this hardware. Not one single solar mama has lost or has a non-functioning tablet. Not one. Yeah, but, but I mean, so, you know, I, I, with with all due respect to the people that made that that comment, I mean, it's it's you know, it's it's this uh, kind of patronizing attitude towards you know uh, people that that uh, uh, grow up in in poverty that that somehow they're yeah. you know they're they're you know responsible for their uh, uh, situation and 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 they, they must have some set of flaws. That you know, right. uh, which is, you know, as you know better than I do, complete and utter nonsense. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I also think it's a little bit about um, risk. So, for instance, if you're a for-profit company and you stand up in front of your investors and you say, "We are not going to do any R and D next year," nobody's going to buy your stock, right? <laughs> you wouldn't buy it. You yeah. wouldn't want to invest in yeah. it. Yet somehow, in the human innovation world. When we stand up and say, we need to innovate here, everybody looks at you like, oh my God, that's a risky proposition. Yeah. But well, especially in the education space. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and if we don't have the best companies in the world right now, many of them were catalyzed by government investment, Tesla being one of them. It's just one example. And when you think about really wanting to innovate, you want to be an innovation leader, somebody has to trust you take a risk on you, and then partner with you through that yeah. innovation arc and just be determined that y'all are going to get there together um, where you'd like to get to. Um, and I think that's, that's the biggest challenge I feel that I've encountered going from the for-profit world to the not-for-profit yeah. world is some of these conversations around um, you know what makes sense what economizes yeah. time and effort what actually will lead to impact and and the risk profiles yeah, say, say a little bit just on that on that Megan say a little bit about how how you've been able to sort of build it, it seems to me that you have a good relationship with with the government here and, and you know they they're viewing you almost as an as an export Sure. You know, to to uh, um, uh, to be shared with, you know, with uh, with other other countries. How how have you built that relationship, and and what do you say makes for a good working relationship between mm -hmm. you know not for profit organizations and governments? So I think that um, I have to say we have an exceptional relationship with the government of India for sure, but also with with many of the countries that we work in. We have also exceptional relationships. Um, and I think that they come from having a shared and clear 
understanding of what you want to accomplish together. And certainly trust is, is very much there. And then delivery. You know, we have to deliver. Not negotiable. Um, if you're working with a government, you have to deliver. So you have to be sure that you can deliver or that you're able to innovate through the challenges to deliver. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, and that builds trust. So it's all of those things. Um, in India in particular, uh, we work very strongly with two ministries. We work with Ministry of External Affairs and and we are one of the few organizations to have exported their model outside of India. This is not uh, traditionally, there are millions of NGOs here, but very few who take their work outside of India. And I think it's very important right now for India to do that. There are some exceptionally fine community practices that have been part of Indian and the development world here for you know 50 and 60 years and and more and those have relevance in the global south and Africa if I think about Africa Africa is not looking to be Europe anymore and they don't want to be America they all have Bollywood ringtones on their cell phones so I think the global south is looking at India hmm. and yeah. saying what do you have to teach us? We know it's a country of innovation. We know it's a country of sound community practice. What do you have to, what do we have to learn from you? So I feel that responsibility as an organization very strongly. Um, and I think we, you know, working with government, you just have got to hang in there because it's not fast. It's, it's a slow process and you have to keep at it all the time without getting discouraged. And I will also say one important thing for me is that um, there are some exceptional women in government. And they're few and far between, as we know. There are not enough women in, in government. Certainly in the areas that we are looking at, education, access to energy, places like this, uh, the women in governments that I have met have been beyond supportive. And that yeah. actually counts for an awful lot. Um, they have opened doors. They have done it without ego, wi selflessly. They have fought for us in places like Ministry of Finance, um, in, the, in the diplomatic yeah. circles. They have gotten behind us and supported us. And so I think that's also been very helpful for us, uh, if I'm being honest. I think women in government uh, are, can be incredibly powerful when they put their, their weight behind something, and that's been helpful Absolutely. for us. Absolutely. No, that's really encouraging to hear. And, and, and the other thing that I take away from, from this conversation as well is that, that, that's interesting is, is the extent to which you know, the, the, the global South is beginning to sort of recognize, I think, what what you know western countries have known for a while that you know the de development and and the not for profit space can be an important instrument of of soft power for sure absolutely. yeah and, th and there's nothing wrong with that i mean I, I, people I shy away from you know people these talk conversations, a lot about but, private yeah. public partnerships <clears throat> yeah. um but there's no question when you can bring together government you can't scale without government you know you have to bring them along so if you're an arrogant organization and you think you're going to operate mm. around government you won't go very far every country we go into even if government doesn't have anything to do with what we're doing we sensitize them and we make sure that we we yeah. have a conversation with them government should never be surprised that you're working in their country this is not a good way to approach things and i think that undermines trust i also think that we're really a social enterprise, right? So I define that as somebody working on, yes, delivering a program or a filling a gap in the, in the governmental delivery system, but also working to understand the social norms and the barriers that have created that problem or might be perpetuating it. And how can we design to also deal with those, change values, look at behaviors that are are in a better place when we're done working with that community. And then lastly, we work on policy change. We've changed energy policy in 11 countries in the global south to include
bottom of the pyramid, decentralized solutions in budget frameworks, in energy and environment ministries. So we're trying always to work on all three of those levels. Mm. And I think that's also, you, you gain a little bit of respect by attempting to at least do that um, whenever you can. Megan, this, I mean, this conversation, I know we could go on and, and, and maybe we, you know, we ought to have a follow-up conversation to delve more deeply into, you know, in, into how one successfully works with, with government, because I know that that is very important in the education space yeah. uh, in particular. And, and I know it's, it's something that a number of, of, of organizations, you know, have to contend with and, and, and struggle with. Um, we are, though, coming up for time, and, uh, and so I just want to close our discussion by asking you the question that I ask all guests to the podcast, which is, if you had to pick one area of knowledge or one skill that you feel it's vitally important for every person to, to, to possess, what would that be? Oh, my gosh. Such a hard question. Um, I think the thing that... I've seen ground everybody is a really deep understanding of where you come from and your community, your tribe, who you are. If you know that, you can go anywhere from there because it gives you a sense of, of rootedness. And where I see that taken from people or people who never have the opportunity to understand. I'm particularly thinking about refugee communities and um, displaced communities. Um, this undermines almost everything else um, beyond that because you've lost the sense of, of who you are, where you come from. So I guess if there's one piece of knowledge, it's to really understand who you are from where you come, yeah. what your base is. Um, if we're talking about academic knowledge, um, I think that um, to know your rights, what to stand up for, yeah. what you're entitled to as a human being, your human rights. Um, for me, this is probably the most vital. important, yeah. vital piece of information. Well, uh, Megan Fallon, thank you for being on, on Wise Words. Thank you. <laughs> if you're enjoying the Wise Words podcast and want to find out more about our guests and their work, as well as discover what else we do at Wise, you can visit us at www.wise-qatar.org backslash wise-words. And if you want to continue the discussion, compliment or critique us, you can find us on Twitter at wise underscore tweets or at wise underscore CEO, hashtag wise pod. We would also appreciate reviews on iTunes because it helps other people find us.